Welcome to the East Memorial Ministries podcast. This podcast is the central hub for all audio publications of East Memorial Baptist Church out of Prattville, Alabama. So grab a pen, paper, and your copy of God's Word, and let's study God's truth together. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, For those that I have not had the chance to meet, my name is Matthew. And uh, Chris and I were talking the other day, and we realized that at the end of this month, we will have been on staff uh, for six months. And, uh, and I want to say just on the outset that in the six months that we've been here, we have felt so welcomed, so loved, and, and really just feel a part of this family and a part of this community. We love Prattville. And so when, when Brother Glenn asked me to fill in this Sunday for him and to preach to all of you, I was very, very excited and looking forward to it. Uh, also, I, I want to make a... a a very quick plug. Uh, it is this Sunday is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and I'm not going to be preaching on the topic of abortion, but I do just in celebration of this day just want to to give a plug and to say that uh, for those of you in the congregation that have fought for life or have chosen life, I, I want to commend you and, and encourage you to continue doing so. And and those and there may be some here or listening who do have scars in the past relating to this topic. And, and if so, I just pray that uh, you will find the grace and forgiveness and mercy that is within the Lord and only our Lord. Well, on the night of June 27, 2005, a four-man team of Navy SEALs was inserted into the mountains of Afghanistan. They were a special reconnaissance team on a reconnaissance mission, and their mission was part of a larger operation called Operation Red Wings. This Operation Red Wings was designed in part to capture or kill an insurgent leader named Ahmed Shah and his group of insurgent fighters. This operation and the four-man SEAL team that took part in it, it initiated a series of tragic events known to the public primarily through the book and the movie called Lone Survivor. And in this book and movie, perhaps the most well-known and controversial event in this, this operation was when the four-man team encountered a group of unarmed goat herders that compromised their position. According to the account of the lone survivor, Marcus Luttrell, the four-man team, upon being discovered by these goat herders, uh, detained them for a bit and then discussed and deliberated amongst themselves what were they going to do with these goat herders. Do they kill them? and potentially protect their, their position and their lives? Or do they do arguably the morally right thing and let them go unharmed and risk having these goat herders report their position to the insurgent fighters? Now, this dilemma has sparked many debates over ethics and warfare, And quite frankly, it it captures our imagination. We can't help but think of ourselves in that situation. What would we do? Do we take 
the pragmatic approach and try to focus on the best outcome for ourselves and, and our friends or our family. And if we think about it, for all intents and purposes, killing these unarmed goat herders, these unarmed civilians who pose no immediate threat to their lives at the time, there was only the potential threat, to kill them would be considered murder and undeniably a violation of the rules of engagement in the Uniform Code of Military Justice. But would it be acceptable in this situation? Are there situations where bending the rules, bending morality would be acceptable? Well, the team, including Marcus Luttrell, ended up letting the goat herders go. However, uh, information that came out in the years following indicates that no matter what the team decided to do, it likely would not have changed the outcome. According to local villagers in the area, the insurgent fighters and all the villagers, they actually heard the helicopter insert the SEAL team in the night before. And so at daybreak, the insurgent team and Ahmed Shah immediately began looking for the SEAL team, ended up finding the fast rope that was accidentally dropped from the helicopter, found their boot prints, and tracked them to their location. And according to the to local villagers, the insurgents found the SEALs as they were deliberating what to do about the goat herders. And they held back, waited for them to release the, the goat herders, and then waited for the right time to ambush. And so in this situation, although it seems like the fate of the SEAL team was fixed, the situation still leads to an interesting question that I just asked. Is it ever justified to bend morality or to compor compromise morally if it is the pragmatic thing to do in a given situation? What if it will lead to a perceived greater good for you, your family, your friends, maybe even your country? And if we place this question into a Christian framework, into a biblical framework, we could ask this, is it ever okay to disobey God or even to delay obedience to God for pra pragmatic reasons? And then we could also ask, does the, does the Bible present any situations where obedience to God requires a rejection of common sense or pragmatic considerations? Or if we put it another way, we could ask it like this, are there any situations in the Bible where obedience to God means exposing oneself or others to either legitimate danger or mission failure itself? Well, I would put forward to you that these situations do exist in the Bible, and today I want us to look at one in depth. If you would turn with me to Joshua 5, and we are going to be in verses 1 to 8 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you some context. So at this point in the book of Joshua, here in Joshua 5, the Israelites have already sent their two spies into Jericho, and they have just crossed the Jordan River through the miraculous power of God, who had dried up the river in order for the Israelites to cross. And they have just crossed the Jordan River to begin their conquest 
of the land of Canaan and ultimately to administer God's judgment on the people of Canaan who had been for hundreds of years engaging in the worst sorts of sins and immorality. And so here in our text in Joshua 5, starting in verse 1, it reads, Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. So here, the Bible is telling us that the enemies of Israel, all the Canaanites, they were terrified, they were feeling hopeless, they lacked the will to fight, and the miraculous power of God accompanying Israel is a, part, uh, is a big part of the reason. And from a tactical pragmatic perspective, this would be the perfect time to strike the Canaanites. Israel has a fresh display of God's miraculous power behind them. Momentum is on their side. The Canaanites were at their most vulnerable position. And mind you, the Israelites would have known this. And why do I say that? Well, earlier in Joshua, when the two spies went into Jericho and were sheltered and hidden by Rahab the prostitute, Rahab told the two spies that all the people, including the men, including the warriors, they were terrified of the Israelites because they had heard about what God had did or had, had done against Egypt and the Amorites on their behalf. And now there's another miracle having them cross the Jordan River that even adds on to that fear and terror. And so you can just picture Joshua's commanders, his advisors coming to him as they cross the Jordan River saying, Joshua, now is our time. Now is our opportunity. Let's deploy the troops. Let's organize them. Let's go right now. But what happens next right after they cross? Well, if you look with me in verse 2 of Joshua 5, Here's what happened next. At that time, the Lord, and this is Yahweh, said to Joshua, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. And continuing in our passage, so Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked for 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised along 
the way. So as we see here in this passage, except for Joshua and Caleb, the only two survivors of the generation that came out of Egypt, except for them, every other male who crossed the Jordan was not circumcised by their parents in the wilderness. So you have a nation of men, of Israelites, who are uncircumcised. And now, just as Israel has crossed the Jordan with all the tactical advantage and momentum on their side, God commands Joshua to now circumcise every single male. And if we're reading through this quickly, we may gloss over the implications of this command. But, but think about it with me for a moment. Israel just entered enemy territory and can be observed by their enemies. Carissa and I, we had the, the, the privilege to, to spend three months in Israel as part of my, my college studies. And we went to Jericho and the plains of Jericho as part of that, that three-month um, study abroad. And, and believe me when I say that at Jericho, you can see the, the, the Jordan River as clear as day. You can see the plains of Jericho, the plains of Moab. It is, it's not very far. It's right there. And what that means is that all the Canaanites, all the men of Jericho, they would have been able to see the entire camp of Israel before they crossed and after they crossed. And so now here, Israel is in enemy territory. Their enemy can see them. And also, here's another point. Every male includes, and we might, we might gloss over this, every warrior and every male capable of wielding the sword. So while in enemy territory, in the sight of their enemies, God is commanding Joshua to circumcise every male, which includes all his warriors and all of his fighting-capable men. And if we're still not seeing the, the implications or the significance of this, consider this even further. In our context today, when we think of circumcision, we often think of baby boys because the, the boys that are most often being circumcised are babies close after birth. And so they're already helpless. They don't respond to pain in the same way. And, and so we don't think much about it, understandably so. But for adult males, circumcision is a whole different ballgame. And I, we won't go into details, but for perspective, let me say this, that today in our, in our modern context, the adult procedure of circumcision is usually performed under general anesthesia, a highest level of, of medical sedation uh, and, and pain prevention. And from a recovery perspective, an adult male who undergoes circumcision, you're going to be out for at least a week, maybe longer due to the pain, risk of infection, and so forth. And so what we can say with certainty is that you would not be able to fight or defend yourself, especially in sword and spear combat. And so God's command to circumcise every male upon crossing the Jordan causes two pragmatic and tactical concerns that are immediate, undeniable, and would have been on the mind of every single Israelite. And here's the first one, uh, to a, and really this is the, the, the lesser problem, but still a problem nonetheless. 
the, you could say that the Israelites would risk losing their momentum, right? We've already talked about that, that they just crossed the Jordan. The Canaanites are terrified. God's miracle is right behind them. And if they spend the time of the, the week, maybe two weeks of recovery, uh, perhaps the Canaanites will regain their nerve. Perhaps they'll regain their senses and regroup and start to plan an attack or, or a counterattack. Now, the second tactical and pragmatic concern, and this is by far the, the more serious concern, is for at least a week, the Israelites will have no males capable of defending the Israelite camp, which includes, by the way, hundreds, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of women and children. And they would have no way of defending that camp from enemy attack. And you may be thinking now, well, would the Israelites have been thinking about this? Is this something, is, is what I'm telling you right now something that they would have legitimately been concerned of? Well, I would put forward that absolutely. And one of the biggest reasons, if you know the book of Genesis well, you may recall the story of what Simeon and Levi did to the men of Shechem after the prince of Shechem, who was named Shechem, raped their sister, Dinah. And since we're already in that portion of the Bible, if you'll turn with me to Genesis 34, we'll just read a few verses to, to see this for ourselves and, and think that this, this was already written down for this generation of Israelites that was crossing the Jordan River. So Joshua and his people would have been familiar with this event. So in Genesis 34, and we'll start reading in verse 12, and this is after Shechem had humiliated Dinah, um, but Shechem did, in, in, a, in a strange sort of, uh, sort of obsessive way, uh, love Dinah. He was intensely attracted to her, and he was desperate to marry her. And so here in verse 12 of Genesis 34, he's speaking to, to Jacob and his sons, and he says, ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you if you will become like us and that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now their words seem reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. Now going down to verse 24, we see the end result of this, of this scheme. It says in verse 24, all who went out of the gates of his city that is Shechem's city, listened to him more and to his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. So if we think about it for a minute, it only took two men to kill an entire city of men recovering from circumcision. So 
thinking of our passage in Joshua 5, what could thousands of Canaanite warriors, many of whom were of great stature and size, what could they do to the camp of Israel if every male were to be circumcised? And so with this story fresh in the mind of the people, you better believe that the Israelites would have been thinking about the men of Shechem when the Lord gave this command to Joshua to circumcise every Israelite male. And you can almost imagine Joshua's commanders, his advisors, even even his people coming to him saying, please, Joshua, don't put us in this vulnerable position. We will lose momentum. The Canaanites will regain their nerve to fight. They'll come upon our camp and they will slaughter us all. And our women and children will be their slaves. Please, Joshua, don't do this. Or maybe they tried, you could think of it, almost imagine them trying a compromise. Maybe they said, okay, well, let's wait. Let's delay you know, this, this command and let's wait until after we take Jericho. Maybe our position will be a little bit stronger. Or maybe let's do it in smaller groups, one at a time. That way we're not completely defenseless as we're, you know, we're still trying to be faithful to the Lord. We're still gonna listen to him but let's just kind of take our time and, and, and do it strategically. Let's be smart about this, pragmatic about this, and, and, and let's, let's do it this way. And quite frankly, if we're being fair, from a completely pragmatic point of view, these concerns, if they were shared to Joshua, and we're not, we're not told if they were, but if they were, these concerns would be understandable and they would be justified from a purely pragmatic point of view. Now, before we tie this together, together and unpack this in our passage, some of you may be thinking, well, and maybe this is a question that's, that's been on your mind as I've been talking is, well, what is the big deal about circumcision? Why would God place his people in this vulnerable position over circumcision? And why now and not before they crossed the Jordan River? Well, to answer these questions, we need to take a, you could say an excursus and and explore circumcision and its biblical significance. So maybe you didn't expect that this Sunday morning you'd be getting a lesson, a a biblical theology of circumcision, but that uh, that is what you are getting. And so let's explore this topic from scripture and unpack the significance of what God is doing in Joshua 5. So the first place where we see circumcision in scripture is in Genesis 17. And you guys can start turning there, but, but I'll have a few more things to say. At this point in the narrative of Genesis, at this point meaning at this point in Genesis 17, God has already established his covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant, God promised him the land of Canaan, He promised him many descendants, descendants that would be as numerous as the stars and that would inherit the land of Canaan. And he also promised blessing that would come both to Abraham and his descendants and ultimately to the entire world through Abraham and his descendants. And Abraham, especially in Genesis 15, had already demonstrated faith in God's promises to him, a faith that resulted in righteousness being credited to him. But here in Genesis 17, two chapters later, God is confirming this covenant that he had already established with Abraham. 
Abraham. And in Genesis 17 here, he introduces a sign of the covenant that he will require of Abraham and all of the, his male descendants and any male that falls within his household. This, this sign will be part of Abraham's obligation and his descendants' obligation to this covenant. This is their covenant obligation, and this sign is the sign of circumcision. Look with me, starting in verse 7 of Genesis 17. And here God is speaking to Abraham, and he says to him in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So as we see in this passage, any male identified with Abraham, any of his descendants, any of those who fall under his household and his authority, they were to be circumcised or else they and their fathers would face God's judgment for failing to fulfill their covenantal obligation, for breaking God's covenant. Now, if we go to the New Testament, God tells us through the Apostle Paul what exactly this sign of circumcision signifies. And and one passage that really lays this out clearly is in Romans chapter 4. And you don't have to turn there if if you want. I think it'll be on the screen. But Romans chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, God through Paul teaches us, starting in verse 11, it says, and he received the sign of circumcision, that is Abraham, a seal, and and by seal, you could also translate this as a signifying mark or or like something that that signifies um, something. And and what it is, here he says, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. Because in Genesis 15, he was still uncircumcised. And the reason is so that he might be the father of all of us who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while being uncircumcised. So what we see from this passage is that circumcision, the sign of circumcision that Abraham received, it was a sign that marked and signaled his righteousness, his righteousness that came through 
his faith in God's promises. And, and, and then we can ask this. Here's the next one. How does circumcision symbolize righteousness through faith? Okay, so we understand that this is what circumcision signifies, but how does it signify this? What's the significance of this symbolism? Well, to understand the symbolism of circumcision, you maybe the best way to, to unpack this is to first understand the symbolism of uncircumcision. And we won't go to these passages for the sake of time, but there are several passages in the Hebrew scriptures that reference uncircumcision with, with various things. So for example, in Exodus 6, verses 12 and 30, Moses refers to, he, in some of your translations, it will say, well, I'm of difficult speech. But what it literally means is that I have uncircumcised lips. Or in Leviticus 19, verse 23, there's a reference to uncircumcised fruit trees that are unable to bear fruit. And then another third example in Jeremiah 6, 10 uh, people, the, the Israelites who refuse to listen to God are referred as to having uncircumcised ears. And so when you consider these passages, what we find is that uncircumcision as a, as a, a symbol represents an impediment that, that prevents proper function. So by saying uncircumcised lips, it's saying I'm not able to speak as I should. To say uncircumcised ears, it's symbolizing an inability or an unwillingness to listen. An uncircumcised fruit tree is a tree that can't produce fruit. And why this is important, and because this is the real way in which this symbolism is primarily applied, is biblically, when the concept of uncircumcision is applied to the heart of man, and the heart is the center in, in scripture, the heart is the center of man's emotions, his will, his thoughts. It, it's it's, it's the, the spiritual core of a man and, and often can be translated as mind or, or soul. When this concept of uncircumcision is applied to the heart, it refers and symbolizes a heart that is unable to serve God, unable to remain loyal to God, and unable to obey God. If we think about it for a moment, the greatest commandment according to Jesus is what? To love God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. That is the greatest commandment according to our Lord Jesus. And for those who have an uncircumcised heart, biblically speaking, they are unable to fulfill that command. They are unable to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. And we don't have time to explore this in depth, but the, the Torah or the first five books of Moses, what it shows is that Israel, and not just Israel, any human being, is unable to circumcise their own heart. Israel is unable to circumcise their own heart. We, born into our sin, are unable to circumcise our own heart. So as a result, God, in Scripture, promises that one day he will circumcise the heart of his people and enable them to serve and obey him. There's, there's two very short passages that really illustrate this. The first one in Deuteronomy 30, verse six. 
And, and here it says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Another great passage, and you don't have to turn there, but in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 27, the same concept is being communicated. And here God is saying in verse 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, that is the Holy Spirit, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So the people, Israel, ourselves, we cannot circumcise our own heart. Only the Lord can do that, and he promises to do that. And these passages that I just read through in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 27, these passages are ultimately pointing to and referring to the new covenant, a covenant that was established by Christ through his crucifixion and resurrection. And now that Christ has been crucified, his blood inaugurated this new covenant, his resurrection sealed the covenant, and now that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he has given us his Holy Spirit, who now, for all who believe in Christ, circumcises their heart in a spiritual sense. That's why there's one verse in the New Testament that's critical. In fact, keeping a thumb in, in Joshua and in the Old Testament, turn over with me to Colossians chapter 2. And, and, and with all that background, we'll see why Paul is saying what he is saying here and really ultimately what the Lord is saying through Paul. In Colossians 2, verses 9 to 14, Paul, referring to Christ, says this in verse 9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the work of working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So with all of this in mind, let's summarize how circumcision of the flesh points to righteousness that comes through faith in God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, his Son. We can say this, circumcision of the flesh symbolizes a faith and loyalty to God that can only come through a circumcision of the heart. So circumcision of the flesh, the circumcision that Abraham received, ultimately points to the circumcision of the heart that has now come through the new covenant. And so 
ultimately this sign of circumcision that Abraham received it, it received, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant that was established through Christ, which, which is why we as Gentile believers or any new believers are no longer required to be circumcised in the same way that Abraham and his descendants were. However, for Abraham, the Israelites and their descendants and all the males in their households, circumcision was their obligation to the Abrahamic covenant that they were under. They were held to that. That was their end of the deal and God was going to hold them to that. So going back to Joshua 5, and if we're gonna tie this all together, now that we, we have this context for the significance and the meaning of circumcision, we can say two things about why God commanded Joshua to circumcise all the men at that point in time, right after they crossed the Jordan River. And the first reason that we can say is that God treats covenant loyalty and covenant obligations to the highest degree. In fact, I would argue that if you, if you look at the, the whole of Scripture, there are very few things, if anything, that comes above covenantal obligation and loyalty. If a leader, let's say a king, violated a covenant witnessed by God, it would warrant curses on the entire nation of people. A good example of this is the Lord made a covenant. Well, really, Joshua made a covenant with the men of Gibeah, who he was originally supposed to destroy as part of God's judgment, but Gibeah was, was crafty. They, they knew that they didn't stand a chance. And so they came up with this whole elaborate scheme in order to get Joshua and his men to make a covenant with them to spare their lives. And, and why this is significant is that God takes his covenants and, and covenants in general so seriously that even though God intended to destroy the people of Gibeah for all of the sins that they had been committing, God honors the covenant first. And more than, or nearly 350, 400 years later, when King Saul, the first king of Israel, violates that covenant, God puts, a, puts plague and famine and drought upon the entire land of Israel. And that punishment is not lifted until seven sons of Saul are, are executed and hung on the walls of Gibeah. So a violation of a covenant is the most serious. And, and you know, I, I won't get too far into the weeds, but it's why Jesus had to hang on a cross like the sons of, of King Saul, because only that punishment, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree, only that level of punishment can satisfy God's wrath for covenant violations. And that is what Jesus did for us. Another really good example of this, of how serious God takes his covenants, and even, and this applies directly to, the, to this covenant with Abraham, is, is regarding Moses in Exodus 4, verses 24 to 26. And we won't turn there, but I'll just kind of, I mean, you can look there if you want, but I'll just kind of paraphrase what's going on. In Exodus 4, verses 24 to 26, Moses had already had his encounter with the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. He had already been 
well, even way back in the beginning of Exodus, Moses had already been saved from Pharaoh and from his Pharaoh's murder of all of the Israelite male children. He had already lived 40 years as an Egyptian. Now he had lived 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd being prepared and humbled by God for his special mission. God had appeared to him, had designated Moses as the man that would be Israel's deliverer out of Egypt. He, he, was, he was God's chosen man. And yet, in Exodus 4, verses 24 and 26, Moses is traveling to Egypt, back from the wilderness to Egypt with his wife and his sons. And while on the way, while they're at an inn, God comes, the angel of the Lord comes and takes a hold of Moses with the intent to kill him. And in the Hebrew there, what the idea is, is that God has him in a death grip, meaning God has come and he has grabbed Moses and he has, in a sense, put the knife to his throat saying, I'm about to kill you. And the reason that he's now about to kill Moses, the man that he has chosen, his chosen man, is because one of his sons was not circumcised. And it's one of the most difficult and, and uh, debated passages in Exodus, but some scholars have suggested, and I think they make a good case, that at some point, uh, Moses likely circumcised his older son or his firstborn Gershom, but then his, his secondborn son. It's possible, based on his wife's response, Zipporah's response to it, that she had somehow stopped Moses from circumcising the youngest son. Outside of Israel, uh, circumcision was practiced, but it was never practiced on babies. That was a unique feature of the circumcision that God gave to Abraham. And so it's possible, even though we're not told, that Moses's wife resisted circumcising their baby and convinced Moses to, to not go through with that, that obligation. And so now here Moses is on his way to Egypt to fulfill God's mission and he seems to be the man, and yet God is willing to throw all that out the window and kill Moses because his covenant is not being observed. Well, his wife was quick thinking. She realizes God gives, gives a chance. Obviously, he doesn't kill Moses right away. He didn't want to kill Moses in that, in that sense, and the, and the Hebrew does communicate that idea. But his wife thinks fast. She goes, she circumcises Moses' son, and the Lord spares Moses. And so we see this is a great example. It's a, it's a peculiar passage. It's interesting. But it's a great example that God cares about his covenants more than arguably anything. And so when we're thinking of our passage in Joshua 5, what we can say, the first thing that we can say about why God is commanding Joshua to do this at this point in time is that God, quite frankly, doesn't care about the pragmatic and tactical considerations. God wants obedience. He wants covenant loyalty. And also, when we think about it, God's in control of the outcome. God is more than capable of protecting the camp of Israel by his own power without the Israelites. He doesn't need the warriors of Israel. He doesn't need the men of Israel to accomplish his purposes and protect his people. He can do that himself. So God, what he's concerned about is that his people, first and foremost, will be obedient and loyal 
to him. God was far more concerned about the heart of his people and that they were loyal to him than he was about any potential outcome or pragmatic consideration. And as we've seen, this is what circumcision itself symbolizes, is a, is a, uncircumc- is a, uncircum- a, a circumcised heart that is loyal and obedient to God. Number two, this is the second thing that we could say about this. Remember I asked, well, well, why did God have them do it now? Why have them do it in enemy territory where they are potentially vulnerable? Why not do it when they were behind the Jordan River in the plains of Moab in relative security and protection? Well, I think we could say this, that it is possible, and I would argue likely, that God wanted to test the loyalty of Joshua and his people. In other words, God deliberately put them in a vulnerable position. God deliberately waited until they had crossed the Jordan River to to make this command and to enforce this command upon Joshua and his people. He likely wanted to test them. And and if we think about this, all throughout the Torah, all throughout the Pentateuch, the, the five books of Moses, God had already promised numerous times that he was going to lead the Israelites, that he was going to bring them into the land of Canaan, and that he was going to give them the land of Canaan. He had promised this all the way back to Abraham, and he had confirmed this promise time and time again. So any Israelite, including Joshua, who knows their scripture and who knows the promises of God would know, well, God has promised us that he will lead us, that he will protect us and that he will give us this land that we are entering. And so really it comes down to, do they trust the promises of God? Do they trust God to protect them in whatever vulnerable position they may feel like they're in? Do they, do they trust God to fulfill his promises? In a sense, do they trust him in the same way that their forefather Abraham trusted him, the one who received the sign of circumcision in the beginning. Well, fortunately for the people of Israel, Joshua and his elders were faithful to Yahweh. And as we see in our text, we don't know what the response of the people was. We don't know all of the details in between. But what we see in the text is that Joshua obeyed and there's nothing recorded about him pushing back or arguing or trying to compromise with God. He did what he was told. There was no doubt, no question. Joshua knew that obedience to the Lord was their protection, was their security and their promise. And so Joshua and his elders, they did this. They circumcised every male. You can imagine how how massive of a medical operation this would have, would have been. And going back to our passage in Joshua 5, we'll, we'll finish our, our, our passage here in verse 8. Here it, it concludes, it says in Joshua 5 verse 8, now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And what this is telling us here 
is not only that were Joshua and his elders faithful and obedient to the Lord's command, but the Israelites did heal. They were protected in their camp. They were not attacked by the Canaanites. They did not lose their momentum in their tactical advantage. And as we continue in the narrative of Joshua, we find that not only does God protect them when they're obedient, but as he promised, he led them into the nation of Israel, to the land of Canaan, and he did give them victories over their enemies. They captured Jericho, they captured the city of Ai, they captured the city of Hazor, and they were victorious under the command of Joshua. So as we conclude and come to a conclusion of, of, of this message, how can we apply, and this is the question we can ask, how can we apply the lessons from this narrative and how can we look to the example of Joshua and apply that to ourselves? What will we do? And we could even ask this of ourselves. What would we do in a similar situation? And for many of us, obedience to God it may not place us in a situation as vulnerable as Joshua. We may not be in a situation where we're facing thousands of of Canaanite warriors who could potentially come in and slaughter us. But in a sense, it might, obedience to God might put us in a vulnerable position, maybe even to the point where we face death and, and harm. And there may come a day when we do face that type of vulnerability, when we do face that, that situation and even to a lesser degree, maybe if we don't face death for, obe for obeying God, obedience to God and loyalty to Christ may still cost us our job. It may cost us a relationship. It may cost us our reputation among friends, family, and the society at large. And it is very possible and likely that as we continue in our day-to-day -day lives, that we are going to face situations where there are going to be pragmatic considerations that would discourage us from obeying Christ or even to maybe even encourage us to disobey Christ or encourage us to delay obedience to Christ. And the question that we have to ask is when we do face those situations, and we will all face those situations to some degree, maybe not as severe as, as it could be, but we will face these situations. And when we do, will we stand strong and trust in God like Joshua and his people did? Will we trust in God like Abraham? We think of Abraham when he was asked and tested by being told to sacrifice his son, his son of promise, which defied all common sense. This is the son of promise. How can God fulfill his promises to Abraham if, if, if I kill my son of promise? And yet Abraham trusted God. And what we find in the New Testament is that Abraham trusted God to such an extent that Abraham thought to himself, well, the Lord can resurrect him from the dead. That's how far Abraham trusted the Lord. And the question that we can ask as we observe the example 
of these heroes of the faith, these Abrahams, these Joshuas. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and their moments of courage and faith, will we follow in their footsteps and trust in God? Will we trust God to take care of us, to protect us? Even if God does permit us to go through harm or maybe even death, will we trust in God's promises of eternal life? Will we trust in his promises of the reward that awaits us in the Lord's return and in the resurrection of believers? Will we trust in this and believe in this? Well, as we conclude today, my hope, my prayer for all of us, and I'm included in that, is that God will enable us first, that if your heart is not circumcised, that if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, and you have not received the spirit of God, that first and foremost, you would ask God to do his work of spiritual circumcision, that you would ask God to give you a heart of faith, to give you his Holy Spirit. And as we find in the New Testament, that those who seek will find, that those who ask will receive, that if you ask God to, grant, to give you the Holy Spirit and to circumcise your, his, his, your heart, he will be faithful to do that. So first and foremost, my prayer is that if any of us do not know the Lord as our Savior, that we would know the Lord as our Savior and receive the circumcision of our heart. And for those of us who have been circumcised in the heart, who have received the Holy Spirit, my hope and my prayer is that all of us would continue to stand strong and to trust in God and to follow in the footsteps of Joshua and men like Abraham. We are glad you joined us today. If you have any questions about what was discussed on today's podcast, send us a message on Facebook. Email us at info at eastmemorial.org or call our church office at 334-365-7500. Thanks for listening.